Today's episode is brought to us by CS Instant Coffee, the best coffee for any adventure you're going to go on. Use the code ADVENTURE at csinstant.coffee and get 50% off through September and October. So give it a shot. And we're also brought to you by Rome Products. They make elastic knit minimalist style wallets with all sorts of designs. Get 20% off the perfect minimalist wallet for all your adventures. It'll hold everything you need by going to wheredoyouroam.com and use the code PODCAST with a capital P at checkout. And last but not least, we have Umbras, the sunglasses that removed the arms and replaced it with a cord that you can cinch comfortably around your head. It will not fall off whatever you throw at it. So go to ombraz.com to learn more. And they asked us, where'd you start? Where are you going? And each day we said, well, we started in San Diego. And each day we got further from San Diego. And they'd say, well, where are you going? And we'd say, Connecticut. And they'd laugh. And then they'd say, well, where did you start? And we'd say, San Diego. They'd say, holy. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast. Trying to help you find adventure every day in any stage of life. You're going to hear from explorers, adventurers, business owners, and anyone living their life a little more out of the box than usual. Hey folks, happy Halloween. We have um, just a, a real treat for you today with Bill Humphrey's story. Uh, he was on the 1973 sponsored Raleigh uh, bicycle team, and they were the first American team to race in Europe uh, in 1973 Tour of Ireland. And let me tell you, no one even gave them a second thought being an American team. You know, Europe, it's just been ingrained for years, the cycling culture. And Bill gets to tell us a firsthand account of what that was like, um, what riding a bicycle across the country was like. He did that before this Tour of Ireland. And, you know, back in the 70s, what that was like being a hippie kind of by his own words. Um, But it's just a great story. Get to hear from him. It's a little rushed. We didn't have a ton of time to do the interview. Unfortunately, I could have talked to him for a week, I'm sure. But uh, and, and what's so cool, the team's getting back together from 1973. This summer in 2020, they're going to be going back to Ireland to do the tour of Ireland and for a reunion. How cool is that? But if you'd like to hear more about Bill's story, he's going to be at the Philly Bike Expo uh, this, I think it's Saturday. Yeah, this Saturday, November 2nd um, at the Philly Bike Expo, which is at the convention center. And if you want to find out more, email him at Bill, B-I-L-L, bikeguy at gmail.com. Love for you to support him. I'd love for you to hear this story and uh, to hear it all firsthand, this huge wave of cycling that, that came over the States and that kind of um, had this osmosis between Europe and the U.S. And he was a big, big part of the beginning of that. So it's very cool to hear from him. Thanks, Bill, for doing this. And uh, yeah, enjoy the episode. But yeah, we're, we're, we're talking today about a 1973 ride where you and three other people went on kind of something that was really brand new at the time. You went and did the tour of Italy. Could, could you tell me, just kind of go over sure. you know, how that came about and, and kind of what, what did that mean for the world of cycling at the time? Because, you know, it was... Uh, 
It was the dark ages. Yeah. Okay, it was the dark ages. <laughs> well, in in the seventies, cycling was uh, was considered the modern era, but it was you know we still as as a U.S. team had not had any major results in in international competition. It was that just based on skill level and kind of the yeah. Age there's of the sport? so much to learn, and and the Europeans, you know, people don't realize that at the turn of the century, the sport was all American. And it was a it, it was the major pastime. It was it was a bigger spectator sport than baseball. Really, at the turn of the century. Yes, people don't realize oh, that. Wow. And cyclists made more money than Ty Cobb and Babe Ruth in in a year back in in the year let's say eighteen ninety nine to about nineteen fifteen or nineteen seventeen. I, I did not know that. Yeah, it was huge. I mean, a, a, a Madison Square Garden uh, would be filled for six consecutive days and nights. And they raced on an indoor track for 24 hours a day, six nights in a row. It was called six-day racing. It was extremely popular, and um, you know that that's where it was then, and it faded. You know, we had we had the advent of the automobile, we had the depression, we had World War One, World War Two, and you know it never got back on its feet again. Uh, <clears throat> and I came along as a rider in the in the early 70s. And uh, and loved it. I was a former track runner in high school, so I had the engine. I had developed the cardio system, and I just had to learn the strategies and the training techniques on a bike. And uh, I, I I rode my bike across country in 1972, camping out in a long-haired hippie with my hair up under my hat. And uh, I was just trying to make a statement with the bike because I had tried racing and I hadn't done well. I had done I done okay at the very novice level, and then I hit I hit the big boys, and I I just couldn't figure it out, and I I was getting stomped and not finishing races, and I just got frustrated and said, "Well, I love this bike." Uh, I can't ra- I, I can't get a handle on the racing thing. I'm and I'm just going to ride across the United States and and make a statement <laughs> that way. You what know? was that like? Well, that was that's a whole other story. But yeah. the whole time of the trip, I I was thinking, you know, when I get to Connecticut, where I left San Diego and I I grew up in Connecticut, but I was just a long haired hippie in San Diego. It was 1971, 72. Got on my bike, put my hair up under my hat, had another guy with me. And we rode across the United States. And in the, my mind, I kept saying to myself, you know, you're riding 100 miles a day. You're going through all kinds of heat, the desert and rain and the mountains. When you get to the East Coast, you're going to be you're going to have to be a good bike rider. You're going to have to be able to race a bike. You're going to be so strong when you get there that even if you don't know what you're doing, you're going to be a good bike racer. And I just kept that aphorism, you know, just going over in my head. And when I finally got to the East Coast, I I was more determined than ever. I raced a couple races in New England in the fall of 72, and I finished in the bunch, and I was competitive. And I won, I won a couple little races. So you know, it worked. Not, yeah, so it worked. So I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to work as a ski bum all winter in Vermont, save my money. I'm going to go to Europe and race bicycles in the spring. Now, I was I – was, I was 28, you know, that's pretty old to start a brand new sport, you know? Yeah, wow. <laughs> and, uh, but one thing led to another and I, I, I ended up being guided to, uh, a, a century road club of America, the oldest bike club in America based in Princeton, New Jersey. And I was told not to go to Europe 
you're, you're going to get crushed. You still don't know what you're doing. Those kids are racing in cold weather and rain. They're going to kill you and you're not going to know what happened and you're going to come home and probably not ride a bike again. It's going to be that thrashing that's going to you know d- deter you from ever riding. So I took their advice and went to Princeton, New Jersey and trained with a bunch of guys there that were very good riders. And I learned some basic techniques and I brought myself along properly and just totally focused. I mean, I, I had no other objective in life, but to make the team, this club had a, had put together one of the best teams in the United States. It was as strong as the U S team, but it was a club team. And some of the riders were ex Olympians and, and, and were still current Olympians. And, uh, I worked my way up that list and managed to make it onto uh, a six person team that rode a, a six day, uh, 575 mile race in Quebec. And uh, that was my indoctrination into big time, what you call stage racing, which is very popular in Europe. That's what the tour de France is. And that's what the tour of Spain and, and all these other big races are They're stage races. So I finished this six day race, came home, went out to the national championships, um, and came in like 14th in the national championships and, uh, you know, the, the, co- the old man who ran our club, the, 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 the grand uh, poopa of this whole organization had been, been negotiating with the Tour of Ireland to get an invitation to go race the eight-day, 750-mile race, the Tour of Ireland in 1973. I knew nothing of this. I had been so busy racing and training that I didn't – I wasn't aware that we were – the club was actually – you know, selecting a, a sponsored team by Raleigh Bicycles that that and, and we were we were invited to this thing. And and he said to me, well, you were like the fourth guy on the club to finish today. You're go back to Boston with with John and train and you're going you're leaving for Ireland in two weeks. And I was just oh, like, this wow. you know, I mean, yeah. was, so what, what were you thinking? I was I was going this this whole cycling thing is getting out of hand. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So, oh man! So, and, and John Alice was like a three-time Olympian who had raced in France uh, when he was a younger guy, and and I was going over with him and John Howard, who was a two-time Olympian and who had won the Pan Am gold medal in Colombia the year before. He was, you know, these were legendary guys, and I was like brand new. I mean, I had just gotten a haircut, you know, and uh, <clears throat> next thing I know, you know, we're we're getting off the plane in Ireland and we're getting greeted by the press and you know, it's a big time event there. So it's in the newspaper every day and people are interviewing you and, uh, and not giving us much of a chance. This was the first time that the Europeans, you know, had seen an American team fully sponsored with a support system. They had seen individuals before Uh, a lot of guys had gone over on their own to race in Europe but nobody had ever seen a, a team getting ready to ride a stage race that represented the United States and, and Robbie. What was the reception? Well, it was, it was, they were glad to see us, but they didn't give us much chance. They didn't know anything. About, they didn't know anything about racing in America. And quite frankly, uh, you know, we were just, we just didn't have a great reputation because we hadn't been visible in Europe that much as, as, as a, as a U.S. team. So uh, they didn't give us much chance. And, and Phil Liggett, who has been the commentator on NBC Sports for the last 45 years, uh, was the commissar. In other words, he was the chief official for the race. 
And he was an Englishman. He's an Englishman who had his own race in England that was much more prestigious than the Tour of Ireland. It was called the Milk Race, and it was 14 days long, and it had all the best teams in the world attended, amateur teams now, not professional, amateur. And he was the commissar, and he interviewed us all uh, over breakfast one morning, and, uh, you know, I didn't have much to say because I, I was so new, you know. Well, the, when the race was over, I mean, I John Howard won a stage, on his birthday, they were shocked at that. But and John Alice, uh, the my other teammate, got got fourth. Got well, he got fifth place overall. John John Howard was third overall after eight days, seven hundred and fifty miles of racing in rain, mountains, cold, miserable, whatever, against you know teams from Holland, France, you know Scotland, England, Ireland. Uh, <clears throat> And uh, and we placed like eighth place team out of, you know, out of like maybe 16 teams. And I one day I had my day in the sunshine, even though the sun hardly ever shone. But uh, I, I, I got away and and, uh, and got third place one day. And um, when it was all over, Phil Liggett found us at the banquet and he said, you know, you guys, uh, you guys have impressed me and I am going to send an invitation to the U.S. Cycling Organization, inviting you guys to come to my race in Great Britain next year, the Bilk Race. So, It's not always possible to take a French press or a coffee maker out in the woods with you, but thankfully now you don't have to because there is a great option in CS Instant Coffee. They make 100% Arabica Instant Coffee in compostable packaging, it's perfect for the outdoors or whenever you don't have the time to make a fresh pot. And right now, you can save 50% on your first order by going to csinstant.coffee and using the code ADVENTURE at checkout. One of my new favorite pieces of gear is actually my wallet. And that's because it's been inspired by simplicity by Rome products. It's a minimalist style wallet, holds my cash, my cards, holds it really tightly because it's elastic. And it's probably eliminated my wallet size down by 60 to 70%. They offer a variety of designs from artistic to patterns and they're machine washable if they get dirty. Come with a little carabiner so you can clip it to things like your keys or your lanyard. And they also offer a complete line of silicone rings with a variety of styles and colors. So if you're tired of carrying around a big bulky wallet, go to wheredoyouroam.com and use the code PODCAST with a capital P at checkout for 20% off. Uh, you know, that felt like an honor. That that was like mind-boggling. You know, we had gone from complete unknowns to getting an invitation to the one of, one of the most prestigious races in the world. So, uh, it, it, you know, it was it, it was unbelievable. And 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 at that point, um, Raleigh was very pleased with us, and and they invited they flew us over to England and took us to the factory and showed us around and really took good care of us worked on our bikes. And then the three of us went off to Spain uh, to ride the world's championships and uh, which were in Barcelona, Spain. So we continued to train and I was going, this is crazy because I, I know guys back in the States had been racing bikes for 10, 12, 15 years 
totally dedicated and never even came close to to getting on a team that was riding the world's championships. And here I come, you know, Nikki new guy. I've, I've, I've gotten lucky. I've surrounded myself with the right people. And, uh, and here I am going to ride the world's championships when I know that people spend a lifetime and never, never get that opportunity. And, uh, so it was, it was a lot of pressure and, uh, and I felt, and what Raleigh was trying to do by sponsoring us was to show the cycling USA that the way you race in Europe is you go over before the world's championships, you ride these hard, hard races that if you can get into them and then you go to the world's championships. So you have some hard racing in your legs before you show up. And the previous years, the team would be selected. There'd be a team for the track and a team for the road. And a lot of them would be intermixed. They would do both and they would just fly over for the worlds and then fly home. And, you know, the results weren't always very good at all because we just didn't have the European experience. So this proved this was their their theory. Their, Raleigh was determined to show that this is how you do it. And uh, when we got to the starting line, I mean, I was quaking in my boots. You know, I'm going, man, we're lining up and I'm going, they put us in the front row. And I'm watching the Dutch kids and the Belgian kids and the Polish and the Italian and the Germans. Now, this these kids are like they're the best in their country and their nations are cycling nations. And this is their way to get a shot at being a professional. I'm looking at these kids line up and I'm going, these kids have been through hell to get here. You know, and I'm like, an, I'm like an American. They don't even, they don't even hardly know we're here. You know, <laughs> we're on the front row and I'm just going, man, this is, this is hard nose, the freaking highway. And this is serious business. And I felt like an interloper, like, you know, like, should I really even be here? You know? So how, how, then what, how did it go? Well, well I had, I had confidence that I could finish. I had confidence that my two teammates could finish in the top 30 you know, which would be huge, which would be, you know, and, and maybe, maybe in the top 25, that would have been a breakthrough. And, you know, that would have been huge. Um, the, uh, there was two other guys on the team, but they hadn't been to the tour of Ireland. They were quality riders, uh, but I didn't count. They didn't have, they didn't have the miles in their legs, so to speak, to, to do well in this event. It was like a 120 mile race. So the gun went off, and, and of course, it's like a shot of adrenaline. I mean, you're going directly to 30 miles an hour on the bicycle. You're climbing a major mountain. You're fighting through the crowds on the street, you know, the spectators. And then you're descending at like 45 to 50 miles an hour down into a neighborhood that's got railroad track crossing and cobblestones. And then you're oh, speeding along on that. And then, you know, there's a huge crash, and it took down about – 25 guys of which two of them were my two teammates. They were down. I, I could barely get by the crash. Bikes were everywhere. They were crawling off the road. And essentially I looked up the road and the other half of the field had, you know, the adrenaline rush from that crash. They were gone. So the race was essentially over. I mean, I chased and got with an organized, what you call a chase group of different Europeans. <clears throat> there was no way we were catching back up to the race. You know, we were losing time every 10 miles. The coach would say, you just lost another four minutes. And we were, you know, we were at, we had our heads down and we're just burying ourselves. 
but we couldn't catch up with the field. So the race, the race was essentially over. So it was a heartbreaker, but you know, that's bike racing, as they say, you know, crashing is, is one of the things that happens. So it was a high and then it was over. And, uh, uh, for me to come back home and, uh, and realize what I had accomplished was mind boggling. And, uh, I, they made a film of this race and, uh, and they showed it that winter at all the bike clubs throughout the United States. And Raleigh was, you know, was was sending this film around. And in that film, which I show when I give when I give my speaking engagements, it's a 25 minute film. It's pretty well done as out of the 27, 25 minutes. I get like three minutes on the day that I got third place. Right? Nice. All right. So, and I get an interview where I get beat and two Irishmen that beat me in the sprint, you know, the tactics were such that they knew the tactics better than me. Cause I was so new. It was obvious that I was stronger than them, but the strongest guy doesn't always win in bicycle racing. You have to have the mindset and know, and know the chess game involved as well as have the strength. And I was so new that these two guys just at the last minute came around me and, and, you know, and I got third place and, um, that video and that movie shown all over the country in bike clubs, you know, not in movie houses or anything. So a lot of people got the grassroots understood the Raleigh team went there and got results in the tour of Ireland. And now we're starting to get international invitations. So it was a major breakthrough. So this summer, all of us have continued to ride. I'm going to be 75. And I said, you know, I, I desperately want to go back to Ireland and ride and drink some beer with my Irish buddies and some of my teammates and, and tell stories and reminisce about what a, what a great time we had and relax. And uh, so I put together a tour of Ireland reunion last August. And I took 20 people from America, which John Howard was one and some other teammates, some guys from Canada who raced it in 1975, some other Americans who raced it in 1981. We went over to Ireland, got off the plane and said, oh, my God, you know, we haven't been here in 48 years. And, and here we are and we meet up with some Irishmen and we just rode our bikes about 45 miles a day and then drank beer and told stories at night. And the Irish guys, about 10 or 15 Irish guys joined us on different times. And we had the time of our life. You know, we just, it was a spectacular time. And, and a lot of guys brought their wives and some people didn't ride bikes hardly at all and still had a great time and, uh, and, uh, very successful trip. And, and it really got a, a lot more awareness of, of what we had accomplished so many years ago. What were, some of the things you noticed after those events to where did American groups start going over more often? Were you, were you aware of that? Yes, it, it was a breakthrough by, uh, by 19, uh, that was 73. Uh, we went over in 74 and 75 in 1976. We started sending us teams in 77. We started sending us teams to Europe and living there and racing there. And so that's how quickly wow. it took over. And, and in 1978, I became a coach of the United States cycling team and moved to Colorado Springs and became the junior national team coach. And we had a Polish rider who had defected from, from uh, the world's championships in, in, uh, in Montreal and moved to the States and became the U.S. team coach. Now the Poles, the Czechs, you know, and the Russians and the East Germans, those East, those Iron Curtain countries 
were unbelievably strong with their sports medicine schools and had powerful cycling teams. And so I, I was fortunate to learn from a guy that I actually had raced against and, and, and learn all the techniques of those countries. And he put them all, he put all his energy into this junior team, his first year as coach. And I was like the assistant coach. And we had a, we had a phenomenal team that included Greg LeMond, who would go on and win the Tour de France three times. Yeah. Oh gosh. You had Greg LeMond. That's awesome. So, so you knew him much younger. I know him very well. We've stayed in touch uh, over the years. He's actually been to my house and helped me coach uh, a local junior team here. <laughs> was his talent pretty obvious early on? Or, or it was, it? and Ed, okay. Eddie, the the Polish guy, saw it instantly. And we had a we had we had four or five. We had like ten really talented kids. They all went on to turn professional. They all went on to get medals in the Olympics, and they and they made a lot of money and traveled the world for many years. And now they're all retired. And, and doing very well in, in business and, and, you know, and so forth and so on. So that was a breakthrough the, to the next level. And then by 1980, we were very strong. And of course, uh, by 1984, Greg turned professional when he was like 19 and, and stayed in Europe. And, and, you know, all of a sudden, 1986, he won the Tour de France. Holy cow. What was that like for you seeing, seeing that? Oh, well, it was incredible. And, uh, you know, I felt grateful that I had lived long enough to see an American team. And, and also that same year, an American professional team made up of a lot of his former, his younger teammates, sponsored by 7-Eleven, rode the Tour de France. So the first American team, professional team to ride the Tour was 86. And at the same time, Greg, who was riding for a European, a French team, won the Tour. And so... Uh, it was mind-boggling. I felt fortunate that I lived long enough to see, you know, my dreams come true. In other words, I started late. Me and my buddies were considered pioneers, and 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 we got to see the fruits of our labor. In other words, it happened so quickly, and, and the program developed so smoothly. It was just amazing, just amazing. So for the last six months, I have completely switched over to Umbra sunglasses, and that's because they fixed everything that frustrates me about sunglasses. First of all, they removed the arms, so it's just a cord that connects the frame and it goes around your head, and it's able to cinch and securely fit against my head, doesn't shake off at all, and when you pull them off, it's completely flat because there's no arms, so you can't break them. So I put them in my pocket and they're good to go. You can wear them in the river, you can wear them biking, you can wear them playing basketball outside. They're not going to fall off. And you don't get a headache from the arms pressing up against you. I was skeptical until I put them on and honestly I, I don't even have any other pair of sunglasses now. And also they give back to the environment. They use zero plastic packaging. They plant 20 trees per every pair that's sold. And to date they've planted over 125,000 mangrove trees. So if you'd like to get a pair, go to ombras.com and that is O-M- B-R-A-Z.com. Do you think this Americans moving into European experiences, obviously, you know, for, for him to win, you guys definitely paved that path for him. 
did, did you see it as being inevitable or, or was this just kind of a shot in the dark and, and it started taking off? Well, it had a lot of momentum. And, you know, the Europeans know Americans from through Olympic sports. And basically their thoughts were, you know, when the Americans try to do something seriously in sports, they it takes them. They usually get it done. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, yeah, they, they uh, knew that. Uh, but now. Greg had to live and, and learn how to speak French and live in a foreign country and be away from home and everything he's familiar with uh, and live with teammates and ride brutally hard races as the first, Amer- you know, one of the first, one of the first <coughs> Americans to race over there. And it was very difficult, very difficult. And a lot of commitment there. Holy cow. Yeah. And there had been others who, you know, who helped him. There were other Americans that were turning pro and, and going on their own and, and getting results and, and helping his effort. And there was a lot of people that contributed. It wasn't just, you know, our team or certain individuals. There was a whole wave of people, uh, including small bike shop owners who, who gave these kids their first bike or gave them a jersey and made sure they had tires and got them to the races. <clears throat> So it was a it was a grassroots movement. That is awesome to be a part of so early on. You know, you 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 go from this kid that feels like he shouldn't belong there, who just did a, a literally a bike tour, to <laughs> paving the way for professional American cycling. I, I mean, just the worlds are so different. That's and for you, the experiences are different. You know, you out there solo in the seventies touring. I, I guarantee. I love to tour it, and that must have been just such a wild experience because there were probably so few people doing it at that time. Uh, people just must have looked at you like you were crazy. Oh, my God. Every day. Yeah, I mean, they they did, and we kept our long hair under our hats, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we had to be careful where we slept at night. You know, we had to be very careful that nobody saw us where, when we finally went into the woods and set up our camp, and we had to be near water. And we had to stay in a lot of small towns or just outside of town. And But the, the interesting thing was that <clears throat> the bike made all the difference. We rolled into some little tiny towns in Kansas and, and Nebraska and Iowa and Wisconsin. But because we weren't walking in with backpacks, with our long hair and beards, because we were on a bicycle, it made all the difference. People realize these guys are not bums. These guys are riding their bikes across. And they asked us, where'd you start? Where are you going? And each day we said, well, we started in San Diego. And each day we got further from San Diego. And they'd say, well, where are you going? And we'd say, Connecticut. And they'd laugh. And then they'd say, well, where did you start? And we'd say, San Diego. They'd say, holy crap, you guys, <laughs> you know, where are you guys going to sleep tonight? And we'd say, we didn't know. And they'd say, well, you can come over at my house and sleep in my yard. I'll fix you dinner. I mean, it was like, you know, those kinds of things happened, you know? Wow. That is, that is too cool. And then, you know, within not very long, you're, you're lining up at these European races, you know, just, just trying to place. That's, that's amazing. That's, that's just what a wild time to be a part of a sport as it's happening, you know? Yeah, it, it, it really is. And to still be involved and um, be telling the story of it, uh, I'm setting up, uh, trying to get speaking engagements. I'll be speaking at the uh, Philadelphia Bike Expo on November 2nd and, and uh, at the convention center. I'll be giving a presentation on, you know, being the first team, telling the story and showing showing slides of, of our reunion and what it was like to go back and uh, and showing the footage of the race in 1973 
uh, just so people know, you know, this is this is how it happened. It didn't happen by accident. And uh, and and we weren't the only ones that made it happen. But we sure we sure uh, had had one of the major breakthrough moments of, of the growth of the sport. And and to go back and I plan on another trip back um, and in July and June of, of 2020 to go back for another week. And this time, the guy who was the commissar in 1973, Phil Liggett, who is so well known to all American cyclists who watch the Tour de France, mm-hmm. he's going to be our guest celebrity. Oh, wow. <laughs> Phil's coming over. We're going to get to reminisce with Phil and ride bikes with Phil. And this is like 46 years later. What other sport can you do at that level 46 years later when you're 75 years old? You can't go out and play football. You can't go out and play basketball. You know, you can't, you know, you're, you've given up the hockey skates by then, you know, <laughs> but yet a bike riding, you can still do it. And, uh, and people are amazed, but, uh, you know, uh, it's it's a it's a great feeling it's a great sport and and yes i have been very fortunate to be a part of it yeah that's a good point i never thought about that you can't you can't do any other sport that well at that age you know what i'm saying but biking cycling you 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 can still crush it in your 70s 80s even oh yeah yeah i mean we went back to ireland and i made sure that this tour group um wild ride ireland i made sure that we got to the gap of memore which is way out in the northernmost part of Ireland. And we had to transfer by bus to get close. And I was determined that I was going to ride over that 24% grade in some places. Oh, gosh. I was determined to ride over that at at my age. And and 20, 25 of us hit the bottom of that hill after riding 30 miles for a warm-up. And we hit that hill again 46 years later. And, you know, it was like, Oh my God, you know, I mean, this is really tough, but I'm going to do it. And we all made it over, you know, and John Howard, he attacked that hill and he's like 73. He attacked that hill like he was a young guy again and went over it in front of all of us, you know, and Bob Gray, a a cross country skier, a legendary from Vermont uh, was with us on the trip and Bob hadn't been on his bike that much at all. And he went over it and he's 80 years old. He went over it in front of me. I couldn't catch up to him. Unbelievable, man. That's yeah, you're right. There's not another sport you can really do that that allows you to do it so late in life. Uh, that is too cool. Now, and I know this is not part of the uh, the notes we talked about, but uh, but researching you, I came across a, a book you 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 wrote called the Jersey Project. Is that is that something you talk about at all? Yeah, I I um, I had a, a lot of success with that. Yeah, and and it's out of print now. Um, I, I, I sold 4,000 books in two years and I did it all by myself. I mean, I found the printer in China and had them imported to my house. And then I distributed every one of them myself. <laughs> good gracious. That's a full-time job, man. <laughs> it was good. And, and I, you know, and I had a distributor in Australia and, uh, I sent a lot of them over to Europe, of course. And, uh, it, it eventually got translated into German. And then I just, I just put it to bed while I was ahead, and uh, but that book is still a very popular book. Yes, thank yeah, you. And what is it about for folks that don't know? Uh, it's the history of, of cycling jerseys and how they grew <clears throat> in quality and in fabric and in sponsorship and the names that were on them and the riders that rode them. And uh, it, it's, it tells the story of the sport through the jerseys that riders wore. 
and just how they evolved over time. Yeah, and, and it, it alludes to the the change in, in lettering, the change in sponsors, the change in fabric. Wow. And the change in racing and who was wearing what at what time in their career. Uh, yeah, it's it, it, sports marketing really emerged through cycling. It's one of the few amateur sports uh, back even and finally in the 70s and 80s where you could put a corporate name on your jersey and go racing around the world and the corporation would pay your club, you know, a certain amount of money for you to wear that Jersey and get results and get, get exposure for the sponsor. So it, it, it was, that was a whole interesting dynamic to the sport. Yeah. And boy has that, we have not turned back since then, huh? It's been progressing in that direction ever since. Yeah. Now, now there's teams racing the tour de France that, you know, have $40 million budgets, you know, it's still, no, but it's still very small in regards to the American, you know, football, baseball, and basketball. I mean, you know, I mean, it's still tiny and the wages are still not even close uh, to what, to what a professional football player makes in this country, but it's still, it's still grown in its own scale. No question. No question. So, you know, how, how, you said you're, you're speaking around. How, can people find out more about where you're going to be uh, speaking and, and, and times and stuff? Yes. They, you know, the best, I, the best thing to do is email me at billbikeguy at gmail.com. And you can look on Facebook uh, for The Real Bike Guy. The real That's my bike nickname, guy. the right. bike guy. So is, have you had some uh, impersonators or, or some people try to take it from you? Yeah, there's some other bike guys around, but none of them have been around since 1973. When Yeah, they're, they're not the real ones. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bill, man, I, I really appreciate you coming on and telling this story. I have just such a unique you know, point of view, such a unique story, and, and being there at the beginning of a sport that so many listeners love. And, you know, I, I remember when I was a kid watching the tour, uh, the, the tour de France all the way through with my mom for the first time and just falling in love with it and getting a bike and just, you know, it's, it's, so it, it's just so cool to see someone who was there at the beginning of all that and, and, and can tell the story from firsthand experience. Really yeah, cool. You have to tell the story. You have to keep the stories, keep everything alive. Absolutely, man. Well, well, thanks for joining. All righty. I appreciate it. All right. Yes, sir. Take care. Bye-bye. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.